Well, I get you during the lunch hour, uh, and I have less time than I thought. I'm not going to apologize, uh, but I do think you should probably have Mike Tuttle apologize to you. I am not really a 20-minute guy. He knows that when he asks me to come speak, so uh, I'm not really a big idea guy uh, or three simple points guy, although I try, uh, kind of. So this will be a dive bomb sermon through Isaiah chapter 6 that we're going to explore together. I give you a, a fair warning. My wife says that I often uh, walk on landmines, uh, whatever particular issue people are struggling with or have or theological issue, whatever that happens to be. So I'll apologize ahead of time if you don't know me, uh, which many of you don't. Just talk to me afterwards and, and ask me questions. I'm not always clear during the message. My goal at my litmus test of what is a successful message uh, is not that you can regurgitate the three points, not that you memorize things, uh, but that the spirit of the living God would impress upon you something, anything for you to take away today in your church setting, in your context. If you're an elder, if you're a layperson, it doesn't matter, but just one thing that God will give to you. And once you get that one thing, hey, you know, just kick your head back and fall to sleep, and, and I, you're hungry, you're tired, and, and uh, you know, we'll get there too for lunch at some point. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we do desperately need you, and we do pray, Lord, even now, this is all just very routine for us, uh, denomination and conferences, and, and even as pastors here, Lord, we, we preach, we hear preachers. Uh, and speak and hear speakers, and, and this is this is what we do, Lord, and this is a dangerous thing for us, because we could miss the Spirit of God, we could miss the guidance of God and the presence of God, Lord, so dig out the wax from our ears and, and take away the pillow from uh, our very nice, comfortable heads, Lord, shake us up, uh, and do a new work in us, uh, something, Lord, reveal something in us, uh, in the name of Jesus, amen. The recent ERA, uh, someone gave me a, a little book, a short book, called Reviving New England, England, the Key to Revitalizing Post-Christian America. I was studying it at the same time. We were in a series in our church on the book of Isaiah, and it made me wonder, could Isaiah 6 be a model for personal and corporate revival? That's a question we're going to attempt to answer today with an affirmative, of course. Now, in this book, the author helpfully distinguishes between what he calls revival and revivalism. Revival is a work of God. Revivalism is a work of man. We can't force revival, he says, but we can prepare for it. Uh, a lot like a, a ship at sea, uh, and you put up the sails, and you can't force the wind to come, uh, but you can prepare for it. There are things that we can do as we prepare for the gale force wind of the Spirit of God in our life. Isaiah chapter 6 is phenomenal, it's beautiful, uh, and yet it, it could take us 12 weeks to actually move through. The, each of the points I'm going to state could easily take 20 to 30 hours of research just in the book of Isaiah to really understand the depth of what's going on and connect it kind of biblically and everything that goes on. So uh, we're not going to do that, of course. I'm just going to mention the points, and we're going to do the best that we can to get through those points. Here are three keys, I think, that we can determine at minimum for the book of Isaiah. Uh, for revival. 
for ourselves and for our church. The first key is simply this. The church must confess her sins. The second key, the church must be cleansed and the church must walk in that cleansing. And the third key, the church must be commissioned. This applies to both the corporate and the individual, to the church and to the personal uh, who you are right now sitting here. Isaiah chapter 6, of course, as we open up, we are familiar with this, is where he experiences the high holiness of God. And it exposes, I think, every flaw within him. Here's how it opens up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. High, and looked it up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the, vo- the house was filled with smoke. And, of course, we know most of us have been through R.C. Sproul's uh, sessions on this and, and holy, holy, holy in the Hebrew. There were no superlatives. And so good, better, best. And this is how you said that something was the best. You repeated it. It was the most. It was the utmost. God is separate. God is different. God is holy. God is clean. God is pure. God is perfect. God is sinless. Immediately, I'm thinking of Isaiah, and I'm thinking of his response, and and it takes me back to a a funny childhood memory of playing with a black light. If you put a black light on, you would notice that there's uh, makeup, you kind of look like a zombie. If you had stains on your clothes, uh, on your hands, if you were painting, even just days before, your hands were clean, but then on the black light, you would see the, the stains uh, underneath your, the layers of your skin. You would see stains on your shirt, even though you were sure that you cleaned it. There was something about a black light, of course, that exposes things that we can't see. And there's a reason why hotels don't give you a black light when you check in. Because that would create shame. It would create embarrassment. There is a a sense in which Isaiah here is experiencing the wavelength of holiness. And unlike Adam, who was very quick to blame Eve, and Eve, of course, quick to blame the serpent, unlike Moses, who hid his face out of fear in Exodus 3, Isaiah does something quite astonishing here. He takes responsibility. Verse 5 reads, And I said, Woe is me! I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, or Israel's armies. It can be understood both ways. Either way, our main point that presents itself to us is just this. Confess your sins, O church. Isaiah hears the seraphim praising Yahweh. And he recognizes immediately that he is not worthy to sing along. He's not worthy to add any, anything. As someone has said, if we didn't know what a straight line was, we wouldn't be able to recognize a crooked line. Up on the PowerPoint is an optical illusion of what looks like very crooked lines. And you wouldn't know it on first glance unless you had a a very straight plumb line across this PowerPoint. But these are all straight lines. 
Isaiah sees, I think, for the first time, what a straight line looks like, and he recognizes immediately the crookedness within his own soul. Calvin, at the young age of 26, already with a lawyer's mind, opens up his institute to the Christian religion with this observation and teaching. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Calvin wrestles a little here with which one precedes the other. But then he goes on to conclude, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the faith of God. And to come down after such contemplation to look into himself. You see, when Isaiah finds God, he finds himself too. And what a wretch he finds. That same experience It catapults us to the New Testament. It makes us think of Peter in Luke chapter 5. He's out all night with the disciples. They're throwing their net. They've caught nothing. It's exhausting work. It's hard work. Jesus in the early morning hours says, hey, why don't you try over there? As though they haven't tried that spot a dozen times. Peter faithfully says, if that's what you want, Lord, what a good attitude to have. I don't understand you, God. I don't know what you're doing in my life. But if that's what you're telling me to do, I'm going to do it. And then the text tells us that they lowered down the net, and then the net began to break. A second boat was called over. And because I have weird questions all the time, and I'm always so curious about how things exactly work, uh, I started Googling what the Jesus boat dimensions were and what the area was. And I was so curious, uh, how many fish would it take to actually come close to sinking a boat, which is what the text tells us almost happened. Well, luckily for me, some people who were much better at math figured it out. And the conclusion was this, 62,000 pounds. You just said holy mackerel. This is probably the only context where that's true. 31 tons, says the Google estimator. And if you were to put that in economic terms, it's about 20 to 25 years per disciple of total financial security. So as far as they're concerned, if they steward this the right way, this is total financial security for the rest of their life. This could be security for their family. This could be security for their children. This is an enormous endowment from Jesus Christ to them to begin the ministry. This is, I think, probably one of the reasons why they can walk away from their business because God has blessed it so much that Christ can say, I'm worth more. If you think that's something, come follow me. Immediately, Peter has a very unusual experience, and, and he, he falls to his knees, and he cries out, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinner. You say, well, what's Peter convicted about? Well, of course, he's convicted about his sin. That's what we say on the surface. Uh, but, but why? Jesus never pointed at him, uh, never called out his sin. He, he never said, hey, guys, come over. I've got this juicy tidbit about Peter, I know what he's been thinking. He never exposed him. In fact, I want to submit to you that the sin is actually secondary. It's in effect, but it's not the cause. 
I think the cause can be found in John 16. A very interesting verse worth spending time on that we don't have. But Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come and convict Christians concerning righteousness. And then he adds, because I am going away. And you get this impression that, that while Jesus is there, they can compare themselves to Jesus. And as long as they're comparing themselves to Jesus, well, he's sinless, and he's perfect, and he's righteous, and they know him, and therefore, according to Calvin, they know themselves. When Jesus leaves, what's the natural, normal human tendency? Well, to compare ourselves to other people. And we do it in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we compare ourselves to other people so we can feel better than other people. Look, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. I don't do what that person does. But sometimes then we compare ourselves in, in almost an effort to punish ourselves. Well, I'm not as good as that person. I don't spend as much time in prayer as that person. I'm not as good a parent as the person I see on Facebook or Instagram or social media as though any of that is true to someone's reality. We only post that which is the best. We, we don't post when we're screaming and crying and, and I want to pull out whatever hair we have left. For me, that's particularly easy. And so Jesus says, I'm going away, and this is the problem. That the Holy Spirit needs to come to convict you of what? Of my righteousness, of who I am, of my sinlessness, of my perfection, of my holiness. Christians have it in their mind that the Holy Spirit's main prerogative is to convict them of sin. I looked through the New Testament. I have hunted through the New Testament. I'm not saying that that could not be in some context somewhere that I have overlooked some sense in which the Spirit of God is doing that. But as far as I can tell, the main tool for convicting the Christian of sin is the law of God. And our conscience in response to the law. What then is the work of the Holy Spirit? Not to point out my sin as though by looking down at the shadow that my sin casts, I am any ways going to be a better person. The role of the Holy Spirit is to guide me and to point me to Jesus. And when I see Jesus, do I see my sin? I do. And, and I, there was a time in my Christian life where I thought, uh, I, I'm walking in holiness and godliness and I'm getting closer to God. And as I get closer to God, things are going to get at least easier or at least I'm going to be more holy. I knew trials would come and sufferings would come, and I've, I've had my share. But I thought, surely the closer I get to God, the better a Christian I become. It's a sad realization these last ten years to realize that walking towards God is a lot like walking towards a, a bright light in a dark room. When you turn around, you will see your shadow deep and black and long. And the closer you get to God, the longer the shadow you cast. And there is a sense in which as we grow closer to God, I think, we start to realize the subtleties of the sinful heart. I was a way better person before I was married. 
I was a way better person before I had child number one and two and then three and then four and five. I was far more patient back in my big days, in my 19s and my 20s. I felt like I was far more godly than I am today. Because all of these relationships, they bring out a, a sinfulness in my heart that's hard for me to control. Easy when I'm a student and I have to not worry about anybody else but myself. But now I see the sinfulness. I see murder in my heart. There's hate. I, I see lust in my heart. I, I see a desire for validation and approval that I never wrestled with, at least not consciously. And again and again, I am brought back to this sense in which uh, I'm asking myself, not who am I? I know who I am. I am a deep, despicable chief of sinners. And the thoughts that go through my mind at any given day could make a sailor blush. But I want to know who Christ is. I want to know his righteousness. And it's kind of this ping pong effect where by looking at him, do we see ourselves? Yes. Do we react like Peter and Isaiah? Yes. Oh, Lord, we are such a wretch. We are such a sinner. Yes, we see that. And yet, we also recognize that communicated to us is the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't stay with him. It comes to us too. There is something about seeing Christ, beholding Christ, witnessing him that changes us. I think Thomas Aquinas had it right that the goal of the Christian life is the beatific vision of God. You think of Acts chapter 6, and here is Stephen, filled with the Spirit, with the face of an angel, we're told. And I don't know how many stones would have to be thrown at someone's head and face and body before they go unconscious, but at least a few and here he is being stoned by the very people that he hopes to reach, by his kinsmen. They pick up a stone the size of a baseball, and they throw it at his head, and he bleeds, and he gushes. And at least before he falls unconscious, a, a stone's going to hit him in the mouth. It's going to knock out his teeth. There's going to be a sense of absolutely excruciating pain. And yet, Stephen could not be more happy. Stephen could not be more content. Stephen could not be more satisfied than he is right now in that moment. Why? Because he sees that beatific vision of Christ. He beholds him. Not just spiritually, not just in the impressions that we have, not just in our devotion, but he sees Jesus. And isn't that, at the end of the day, what really melts away fear and anxiety and worry? I mean, there's all kinds of principles we can use, and I love to go to Philippians 4, and I love to apply the principles, and, and I've got anxiety issues. That's what drives me to, to be a good student, because otherwise I would freak out and, and probably end up in a psych ward. And yet, in the quiet times that I have with the Lord, and the times of scheduling praise times with the Lord, without the principles, without all the teaching, without all the things that I know in my head, when I can just come into the presence of Jesus Christ, all of that melts away. And there is warmth 
and there is comfort and there is love and there is, as it were, the, the arms of God wrapped around me and, and those inner cries, that inner pain. They're just soothed. I know who I am, a child of God. And, and isn't that what Paul's talking about, 2 Corinthians 3.18? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. Not by doing penance. He doesn't say do these things and you'll be transformed. He doesn't even say think these things and you'll be transformed. That's a biblical principle, but that's not the primary principle. He doesn't say pray these things and you'll be transformed. He says beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed. The goal of the Christian life is to see Jesus. When we see Jesus, the other things pale in we know him, and then we know ourselves. What do our churches need except for a desperate encounter of the third kind of the holiness of God? To bring about the kind of confession that really is a true confession. Not a forced one. Not a made-up one. Not one that's just in the service because it has to be in the service because we're doing a service of confession. But, but something deeper that moves us and shakes us in our inner being. Throughout the Bible, confession is powerful. Confession is how we're saved. Romans 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. Confession is how we maintain fellowship with God after we're saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, 13 warns that a person who conceals their sins will not prosper. I take that to mean spiritual prosper. Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. James says the same thing. Hey, if you're sick, have the elders come, anoint you with oil, pray over you, and you confess your sins, and then you'll be healed. He's not saying that every sickness is due to harboring sin, but he is certainly saying that some sickness is due to harboring sin. Years ago, I read uh, John MacArthur's book on forgiveness, and he mentions either in that or his sermon series that, that there was a, a psychiatrist in the United Kingdom been a psychiatrist for something like nearly 30 years, had worked with the mentally ill, thousands of patients, expert in his field. When he gave a seminar, he said to the people, if my people could only learn to forgive, we could empty out all of the psych wards, all of the mental institutions, all of them. He believed, by the way, not as a Christian, he believed that forgiveness was the key. Why? Because here were people who were holding on to sin, holding on and harboring either the sin that has been done to them or the sin that they're responding with, and they are wasting away from the inside out. Simply because they're not confessing that sin and moving past it. Don't hold on to sin. It will kill you. Puritans said, and you know, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's true. Peter picks this up, Acts 3.19, and, and offers us this glimmer of hope and says, 
repent of your sins, repent, so your sins might be wiped out, and times of refreshing would come. But what are times of refreshing if not personal revival? What are times of refreshing when they come on a group of people if not the church in revival? I know it's initially talking about Christ and coming to Christ, but isn't the gospel something we preach to ourselves every day? That we have to come to Christ every day in some way, and therefore shouldn't we experience regular, habitual times of refreshing? How sad it is when I look at my life. Way back, uh, going to Bix, uh, there was no way I would have ever believed that my zeal or my passion would ever have been dampened. And unfortunately, adults around me would keep warning me, not in an encouraging way, mind you. Oh, you know, you're young. You're excited. Oh, that'll go away when life gets a hold of you. It took a while. I was determined to prove them wrong. In the last 10 years, it has been a difficult thing to find those flickers of passion, flickers of excitement, true and deep, that transform those times of refreshing. And yet they're there. We spend time in confession, not just me, but, but together, the people of God. Throughout the Bible, confession is more than verbal. It is both, we might say, an attitude and an action. Uh, we speak of confession as confession, and then the flip side on the other side of the coin, repentance. But really, they're both an attitude and an action. And I think that's nowhere more demonstrated than a controversial few chapters in Ezra 9 and 10. We don't have time to look at it, so I'll give you the highlights. This is after the Babylonian exile. For 70 years, Israel had been taken away. And if you back up a little further, you remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel. Remember that the northern tribes were warned by prophets uh, over and over again. Amos and Hosea went to the north. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be destroyed. But they ignored it, and they engaged in their idolatry and their sexual worship. Uh, they're mixing paganism with Yahwehism. And the Assyrians rose up very much by God's power, very much by God's hand, to be God's rod of discipline, and he dashed them to pieces like this breaking glass on a concrete floor. And those ten tribes became known in, in biblical history as the ten lost tribes. They still exist in the genealogy, if you can trace that throughout the Bible, but they never again come together as tribes, and they, and they never together come together as a nation. They are gone. They are taken into Assyria. They are mixed with the people of Assyria, and they disappear. Now only Judah and Benjamin are left. And it's been uh, a few hundred years. They saw this happen to Israel. They know that it's a warning. And of course, they were taken off into exile. This catches us after the 70 years. They come back, the promise of God, that exactly what God said, I will bring you back. This is the famous Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you in context. Refer to Israel and bringing them back from the exile and the fact that our God is a promise-keeping God does what he says, and he says what he does. Ezra should be jumping, and tambourines should be, should be flailing, and people should be uh, celebrating, but Ezra comes back, and he's weeping, and he's crying. Tears are 
coming out and he rips his clothing and he's, he's before the very temple of God, the same place Isaiah is in his vision. Why? Because here he is bringing this remnant back, a small number of people out of the millions of Israelites, a small number. And the people in their time in Babylon had taken foreign wives. And with taking foreign wives comes taking foreign gods. They're corrupt. They're unclean. Poison. And Ezra doesn't know what to do, so he's weeping and he's crying all day, all through the afternoon, all through the evening. And the people see his broken heart. What a good leader. He asks nothing of them. He demands nothing of them. He casts no vision. He simply confesses, repents, fasts, and he's broken. And the people come and say, we have transgressed the law of God. We've married foreign women. We have corrupted what God has, is doing. We have brought in idolatry. What's the solution? This does not come from the leadership. This is not a top-down. This is a bottom-up. The solution that the people offer is, we need to divorce our families. We need to put away our wives. And you think of what that means. 70 years in Babylon, it, it, this could be thousands of families Thousands of men who took foreign wives, they have children. They have four or six or eight or ten children. Children that they love, like Abraham who loved Ishmael, but had to send him away on God's command. And it broke his heart. But God was more important. So they put away their wives and they send them presumably back to Babylon with their children. How are they going to live? How are they going to survive? The entire society is a patriarchal society. None of that is given to us in the text. The concern is not laid out because the main concern is not the human felt needs, but God's needs. What God wants. That's what matters. And this is not just what I do when I confess sin, because I love confessing sin, and I love feeling cleansed, and it feels a lot like uh, dumping out a bucket, and then it kind of fills back up again, you know, drip, drip, drip all week, and you dump it out and you feel good. This is not just when I go to convention, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Good thing you're a God of grace. Good thing you're a God of love. I'm sorry. Now, Paul says don't abuse the grace that we're given, but I, I abuse that grace all the time. I have to... Confess that I'm abusing the grace of God. And yet, is it really any different in its extreme than when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your foot, your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus was extreme. Could you imagine this just for a moment in the context of the 21st century? And I know it's controversial, but I, I do know this. Even uh, evangelicals agree, no matter where you land on divorce and remarriage, you have to land that there are boundaries. You have to land that there is such a category as being divorced and remarried on unbiblical grounds. It does exist, and some want to add a few more things to it, and some want it to be more narrow, but it exists, and that we can agree on, and there are not many reasons biblically for a Christian who's a known Christian, not just a non-Christian who didn't know better, so for a Christian with knowledge, there are not many reasons that they can cite to get a divorce before God. They're told he hates it. 
and certainly then to just be remarried to whoever it is that we want. Could you imagine in, in our context? I mean, in Ezra's context, the, the principle is pretty clear. We can't get to the promised land where we belong. We can't get to the promised land of revival. We can't get there until you leave your sin in Babylon. Don't bring it with you. Leave it behind. Of course, the modern advice would be, whoa, whoa, pastor. I mean, you, we would tell our people to remain as you are. I mean, I know Jesus in Matthew 19 clearly spells out that there is such a thing as illegitimate marriage that probably most, if not all, don't want to go too far with that, but of the Christian divorces and Christian marriages are illegitimate according to that standard. But we don't want to destroy families. We don't want to hurt people. No, I, I know I, I would not tell people that per se. I'm saying that the example in Ezra is people are so cut to the heart, so broken from the inside out, that from the people, the solution comes. It's interesting, just as a thought experiment, you had a gay couple in your church, a transgender couple, they have six kids that they've adopted, and they come to you because they're so convicted, because they've heard the gospel, and because they have now a love for Jesus, and they say, I just have this overwhelming conviction that I need to put away my spouse. I love them. My, my feelings, which are sinful, the decisions I made which are sinful, they, they don't just dissipate into the air. I, I love this person. I love my children, but God's more important. And what God wants is more important than what I want. We would never, at least evangelical or conservative pastor, would never say, no, no, remain as you are. We would say, you are doing the good and the right and the proper thing. And yet, when it comes to divorce on unbiblical grounds, remarriage on unbiblical grounds, it is the most prevalent and accepted sin in the American church. It is hard for me to imagine why or how God can possibly bless the American church when we ignore that sin. We don't encourage our people to be confronted by it. We don't encourage them that if they feel bad, they can confess, that they can be forgiven, that they can be returned to Christ. Of course, I'm not suggesting that they put away their wives, that they put away their family. Although, if they believe that is the case because they are cut to the heart, uh, I think they should do it. Yeah, because that marriage anyway is illegitimate before God. At the end of the day, we don't take sin seriously. I don't take sin seriously. Why? Maybe because we've not encountered the true holiness of God. My point here, and it's easy to get sidetracked, it's easy to get uh, emotional uh, and react to me, but my point is not actually about divorce. Uh, divorce is systemic of a larger problem that we love and tolerate sin. There is a deeper principle here, and I think the principle might go something like this. We must divorce whatever sin we're married to. Whatever habit has developed in our life that, uh, that has taken root, that has a stronghold, an indwelling sin, a, a rootedness of that sin. And we have to get rid of it first from ourselves and leave it in Babylon and then provide opportunities for our people to do the same. I love uh, that, that we have a strategic plan for evangelism and church planting. I love build materials and first principles, and we've been tremendously blessed by it. And yet none of that stuff will work if we're not right with God. On the individual level, on the church level, 
we move so quick to the principles, to the projects, to the things on the outside of the cup without hearing Jesus say, clean first the inside. Got a lot going on. I know it slows us down. I know it doesn't seem an effective use of time. I know it's not showy when we spent a whole month in January every week confessing our sins, every week reading the penitential psalms, every week doing this. It didn't feel like progress. But boy, have we been blessed from it. I'm often reminded and convicted of Susanna Wesley's wisdom she gave to John and Charles, and I don't like the wisdom particularly, but I keep it above my desk. And she says this, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Book of Hebrews says that we are to cast off every weight and sin that hinders. And so the author gives us this category of things that are called weights that we would not typically label as sin, and yet it's slowing us down in the Christian race. We're putting sandbags on our shoulders when we're trying to swim for Jesus, and it's just not working. There's a whole slew of things of how we use our time, how we use our money, the decisions that we make, they don't fall into nice, neat category of this is a sin. And yet, if we're seeking God, if we're praying to God, we have this sense that that thing that we're doing right now, that thing that's in our life that we've been spending time on, trying to get back at somebody on Facebook, trying to respond to somebody because they critiqued us, posting too many photos on Instagram because we're looking for a sense of validation. Whatever that thing is, it's a weight. And it's slowing us down. And it it may not be a sin, and nobody on the outside is ever going to know, and a mentor is never going to know, and no one's going to know, but you know, don't you? You know right here, right now, that there is a weight. There may be many weights. You've got to unbuckle those. Got to unbuckle those to run the race with endurance. The idea that confession is both an attitude and an action, I think, is given to us in Scripture to help us distinguish between true and false confession or, or true and false repentance. They're the flip side of the same coin. Pharaoh twice told Moses, I have sinned, but it was a dead confession. Saul three times said, I have sinned, but it was empty. In contrast to David's confession, which had robust teeth behind it, right? David's confession, which meant something. Judas represents a a fake sort of hollow, worldly sorrow or a fake repentance. Peter, a real one. Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the same kind of models. And I ask myself, am I really repenting? My mind goes to John Bunyan and what he said. He said this, The difference between true and false repentance lies in this. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart, but the other as Eve against the serpent or something else. 
So Bunyan says, this is a, a good litmus test. When I search my heart, who am I blaming? Am I blaming my upbringing? Am I blaming my mother issues or my father issues, of which I have many? A am I blaming my wife? It's my wife's fault that I treat her that way. It's my children's fault that I get mad uh, or hostile or a harsh voice. Who am I blaming? It's my boss's fault that my job's not good. And in that sense, no good, real, true, genuine confession can come while we blame other people. When you see God, you see yourself. When you see yourself, you see a wretch, and you confess that wretch. The American church, the New England church, the Advent Christian church, needs desperately times of confession, corporately and personally, if we're going to see actual revival. Why is the church dying? I think a good book to look at is Ron Sider's The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. In that book, he compares the rates of divorce to Christian and non-Christian, abortion to Christian and non-Christian, the rate of fornication, or what people call cohabitation, the rate of adultery, racism, domestic abuse. In every single category that he can gather data for, he says there is virtually no difference between those in the church and those out. Scandalous behavior, he says, is rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord. But with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. Ouch. Yet we go to church every week. We're in church, aren't we? American church might be a lot like 8th century Israel. Isaiah's most scathing rebuke, which is throughout the entire book of Isaiah, has to do with false worship. Right in chapter 1, you can't get away from it. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He condemns their false worship. Israel is there saying, Lord, we don't know what the problem is. We're praising you. We're dancing to you. We have celebrations. We have festivals. We have rituals. We have all these things that we're really good at doing. And God's answer is verse 14 to 17 of chapter 1. My soul hates these. There are burdens in them. I will hide from you. Verses 16 and 17, you can look at that yourself. Isaiah offers a solution, and the solution, no surprise, is to confess, to be cleansed, and to be commissioned. We're not just choosing Isaiah 6 as the model because that's the model in there. It's because I think that model repeats itself throughout the book of Isaiah in different ways. A lot of people read Isaiah and say, well, you know, uh, the comparison is uh, that Isaiah is condemning Israel, and, and therefore uh, God is condemning America, and God has abandoned uh, our nation. That may be true, but the proper parallel to Israel in the Old Testament is not America, but the church. And it prompts a, a very deep, hard question. Has God abandoned the American church? The harder question, has God abandoned my church? Does God accept the worship my church offers? Does he accept the worship your church offers? Or does he reject it outright? This is something we dismiss too easily. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We don't want to stew on this. We don't want to ask this question. We're good Christians. We're sincere Christians. Yeah, we mess up, but we love Jesus. The idea that I could be spending the last decade of my life offering God false worship, empty worship, external worship, 
To which he's saying, my soul hates that. So deeply depressing and sad and convicting. And yet I have to ask the question, because as my church does not seem to be flourishing in ways I would love for it, I believe it starts here with me. I'm not flourishing in the ways that I want either. Maybe the church is just simply reflecting subjectively what's on the inside. I do think the churches, the conferences, the denomination should declare a day of confession and fasting on a Sunday and we could all participate. It would be foreign to us, but the Bible gives us a model, the penitential psalms, the psalms of confession, Psalm 6 and 32, 38, 51. 102, 130, 143, you can Google them to find out. And they are the model for the corporate church to say, this is how we come before God, this is how we confess. And this is how we mean it. Now, is Judah going to confess? No. If you're reading chapters 1 through 5 carefully, you'll notice that there's almost a, a law indictment that's going on. And God lays before Judah all of the account of her sins and says, here are two paths you can travel here are two cities that you can be, the city of Zion or, or Babylon. Who are you going to be? But by the time you get to chapter 5, it doesn't look good for Judah. It doesn't look hopeful. And we're asking ourselves the question, can Judah even be saved? That's what Israel would be asking by the time they flip to chapter 6. Is Judah too far gone? Can Judah be restored? Can Judah be revived again? Aren't those the same questions we're asking about the church in New England? The same questions that was asked in that book. Isaiah's encounter is not for him alone. He is a model. He's an archetype of how to respond to God. How do we know that? I think in part because when you read the book of Ezekiel, the prophetic call of Ezekiel comes early on in the book. The prophetic call of Jeremiah comes early on in the book. And yet here in the book of Isaiah, the prophetic call is not there in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or 3. Four or five, it comes in chapter six. Why is it delayed? Because the indictment, the judgment comes first as a way to hold out Isaiah and say, this is the model of how to respond to God and receive his blessing. And others do follow that model in the book of Isaiah. I'll mention later. So not only does he confess, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, but he receives a cleansing that empowers him to walk deeper into the presence of God. He's on his knees, I presume. He's called out, I've become undone. An angel comes flying to him with a coal and, and touches it to his lips. And Good thing this is a vision because he'd end up like Angelina Jolie and probably wouldn't enjoy that very much. And this is a purifying fire. 6 and 7. 7 says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What a beautiful image of forgiveness. My mind launches to the New Testament where there's a woman who's been unclean for 12 years and the doctors have messed her up and the people don't care about her and she's reaching out to touch just the tassel of Jesus' robe and then she is cleaned and she is healed. There's power in forgiveness. And I think that's what that's a symbol of, not just merely physical healing, but the spiritual healing. Forgiveness for the Christian, of course, is not a one-time event. It's something that happens throughout the Christian lifestyle, something that we're called to walk in. 
Jesus said at the end of time, or the end of time, the love of many will grow cold. Well, Jesus, what's the solution? What should we do? The solution is be cleansed and walking. Let forgiveness have its way in you. Remember the beautiful story of Luke 7. Jesus at dinner with a Pharisee. Pharisee did not greet him. The Pharisee did not give him any oil, did not wash his feet, did not give him any of the normal uh, accolades that you would give to a guest. And here comes a sinful woman into their midst. And there's probably people all around, and they're reclining on pillows, uh, uh, leaning on each other, and, and their feet are out. And a sinful woman, we're told, comes into the midst and kisses his feet, anoints his head with oil, his feet with perfume, washes his feet with her hair, such an intimate and, and, and amazing act. And then the, the great thing here is Luke 7, where Jesus makes this conclusion and says, therefore, Simon, right, the Pharisee, I tell you, because her many sins have been forgiven, and that's important, heiress past tense, because they have already been forgiven, she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Catholic Bible likes to get this all turned into a works righteousness thing. Listen to how they translate it. For this reason, I tell you that her sins, many as they are, have been forgiven her because she's shown such great love. They turn it into a causal effect. Her sins have been forgiven because, on the basis of, the fact that she's shown such great love. No, Roman Catholic Church, the context is determinative. The, Jesus just, just got done talking about the parable of the debtors. Hey, if someone owes a master 50 denarii and another owes 500 and the master forgives them both, who will love him more? That's the question Jesus just asked. And Simon's answer is spot on, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus' entire point is not that, uh, that you can by loving harder, you can earn forgiveness, but that forgiveness creates love. That love flows from the spring of a forgiven heart. That's his point. Where there's love, there's motivation and zeal. There's dedication and commitment and excitement and joy and delight. And if we're experiencing a spiritual blizzard in our churches, if they feel more like the woolly mammoth that's been frozen in ice, the solution might be to claim, to own, to walk in, to walk on the forgiveness of Christ and what he's purchased. I see my people, I see myself at times getting stuck right here. Too many of us get stuck at the stage of confessing our sins, but we remain in the shackles of shame and the dungeon of guilt. They have not, we have not, I have not always owned fully the forgiveness that Christ has purchased. To some degree, we all have Catholic hearts. We all want to earn God's favor when we've sinned. We all want to do forms of penance when we sin. We all want to punish ourselves. But to accept and receive Christ's daily atonement in our lives, that is freedom. And when we're free, our churches can be used mightily by God. And make no mistake about it, we will not be used, our churches will not be used, not in the way that we want, until this happens. How do we know? Paul tells Timothy, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 
Do you want to be useful? Do you want your churches to be useful? It begins, I believe, with Peter telling us uh, judgment begins with the household of God. So it begins with us. It begins with us as pastors and elders to come before our people and to confess our sins to our elder board, to our each other, in a way that is non-judgmental, in a way that is vulnerable. Vulnerability creates vulnerability. We get up there and we confess that we broke the speed limit by half a mile. That's not going to create vulnerability. Nobody cares about that. Give us something real and juicy. Confess an unforgiving heart. And of course, you can't confess everything as leaders. Uh, that's why we talk to leaders. But there is a sense in which we can open up our chest and say, this is my heart. And it hurts. And I'm not perfect. And I messed up. And I've got wrong thinking. And I've got wrong feelings. And this pulpit in no way separates me from you in any kind of way that would be deemed holy. From that, I think there's a trickle-down effect into the church. Revival comes when we confess our sins, when we're cleansed, and we walk in that cleansing, and hold on with me, when we accept our commission. Cod calls out in chapter 6, verse 8, of course, famous missions verse, who will go for us? But, you know, it is apropos, it is fitting. Isaiah has no idea what the mission is. He has no idea where it is. He has no idea what it entails. He has no details. And yet, he volunteers both hands straight up in the air. You ever been to a class with kindergartners and said, uh, can I have someone to volunteer? Can I have someone to go get me this book? Uh, is there someone in the classroom that would like to do this? And what happens? It's not just like their arms go up. I, you, I mean, I'm a little worried sometimes when I visit the school. I, it looks like their arms are going to come off, like a Barbie or Ken doll is going to pop out. They're so eager. They don't even know what I'm going to ask. You just say, can I have a volunteer? And they trust you implicitly. Now, whatever you're going to ask them, of course, is, is not going to be something that they're going to hate. I don't think the what matters to Isaiah. I think that as much it's secondary to the who, or we might say, to whom is he serving? <coughs> Excuse me. Yahweh, Lord of hosts. And whether he serves him picking up camel dung or scrubbing toilets doesn't really matter as long as he is serving the king of light. Now, in context, Isaiah is commissioned specifically and prophetically to declare devastation upon Israel. No doubt about that. Not exactly the mission message that we want to take, but that's not the point. The point is his attitude, his willingness, his eagerness. And to this extent, once he's given a commission, we can gauge Isaiah's success and effectiveness defined in the context by how faithful he is to the commission he's given. Whether all Israel turns and repents or rebels and refuses does not change Isaiah's litmus test or standard of success. He's still successful by God's standard if he's preaching and proclaiming the message. Now, if he runs away like Jonah, we can say, yeah, he's failed. If he gets distracted like Samson with all the worldly pleasures of the world, he's failed. If he rationalizes Saul, who always had good reasons for doing the wrong things, then he's failed. 
If he thinks that he can go and create a billboard that will warn Israel, and then he can kind of take it easy in his little hut, well, yeah, that's not your commission, is it? Well, I thought this was more effective, God. I'm pretty sure I can reach more people. But that's not your commission. Your commission is to preach prophetically the, the judgment upon Israel. And if God says, do it this way, we're not allowed to do it another way. No matter how innovative we think we are, or how slick. There's a difference between translating the principles of the New Testament on to us today and translating God's heart to us. modern fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets is not the pastor, but the church. Raised up, commissioned by God, sent with the authority of God to proclaim the message of God. Of course, we know that message, to make disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue in the whole world. Now, the church can deny her commission, pretend it's someone else's job, outsource it. Hey, Uh, There's great Bible colleges, there's great seminaries, there's all this great online education. There's things like Build, there's things like Bix. Hey, we can outsource that. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to worry. We don't have to step up. No one has to open up their home. No one has to feel uncomfortable. We don't have to have an intern. We don't have to figure out how to raise money. We can tell, just push in on everyone else. Imagine if Isaiah did that. This is my commissioning, but I'm going to pay you a few dollars a day. Did you go do it? No. Might he use other resources? Might he use other things? Sure. But he's got the commissioning. It's his. And so we have to have not the, it's their job, but it's our job. We're going to use those tools at our disposal. I'm not saying don't use them. I say use them to the fullest extent. Missionaries in training with new tribes, and they already know my heart. I said, I'm going to send you to new tribes. It's two years of Bible education. It's 18 months of language and linguistics. I'm going to send you there. But when you get on the field, make no mistake about it, I don't want to keep sending people to new tribes. I want to send people to you. I want to train them in our church, send them to you. You train them on the field, and then we'll figure out where they need to go next. Let's cut out the middleman, cut out years, and cut out thousands of dollars. That sounds good to me. But in the meantime, we're going to use the abilities and the things that God has provided to the best of our ability. The church can get distracted, and it does, with all kinds of political issues, cultural issues, side issues. The church can rationalize like Saul. And when I say what I'm going to say, don't get offended after everything we heard and, and people sharing their heart about what their churches are doing. But there is a sense in which we rationalize the commission that we are given so that we don't have to do it as a church. We have our soup kitchen. We have our food pantry. It's been there for 50 years. It's not made one disciple. It's not really functioning according to the commission to make mature and multiply disciples. That does not matter to us because as long as we're doing an okay thing or a good thing, we think that's the commission. That doesn't fly. Wouldn't fly for any of the prophets. If God gives a commission, he wants it done his way, according to what he said. Go and make disciples. Preach, proclaim, teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, live it out, create gospel communities, no doubt. But if that's not something that we can see success in, according to the commission, we need to gut it and not feel bad about it. 
It doesn't mean that a soup kitchen doesn't work in every context or, or that every church is wrong. No, there's plenty of churches that might say this is what we've decided to do, but we've also figured out a way to reach people for Christ. It's not just a revolving door. I've heard of churches that have their people come and sit down at the table and they're on a rotating basis with the families who come and, and they build relationships and there's accountability and there's talk in the church and who are you meeting and who are you having over to your home. And, and, and But, you know, we like arm's length Christianity. We like having a soup kitchen where we can do something for someone, we can check it off, but we don't have to invite the poor into our home. I mean, what if they steal something? What if they touch our kids in an inappropriate way? Because we're not setting the right boundaries with our kids, or we're not setting the right boundaries in our home. What if, what if, what if? And there's all this fear, but we still want to do something good. There is such a thing as a hand up. It's not the same as a hand out. And that is, I think, a, a good cliche for Christians as we try to figure out what to do and how to do it best. The motto we give to our people is really simple. I think it comes from the uh, 19th century children's nursery rhyme, and it just says, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. has a nice little rhyme to it. What is our gospel best of where we as a church, as leaders, must use our time, our money, our energy, our resources? They're all limited. None of us ha has endless anything. And our time is probably the most valuable resource because once it's gone, it's gone. It's unrenewable resource. We'll never get it back this side of the kingdom of God. What is our gospel best? And so when someone suggests an idea, we encourage our people. That's a great idea. We love initial ideas. But you have to put it through the, the grain and the scrutiny of good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. Is this our gospel best in the context we have, with the people we have, with the leadership we have, there's so many things I want to do as a church and so many things that are on my list that have not been accomplished. Why? Because they just are really not my gospel best in our context because we don't have the resources, the people, the motivation, whatever, to get it done. But we're doing what we can do with what God's given us. This question rolls over not just to the corporate sense, but I think very personally to the sense of a personal commission from God. And this is subjective, but I do think there's a basis for this throughout not just Scripture, but 2,000 years of church history. I think that if you read biographies of some of the great saints, that you will discover that they were driven in the midnight hours with a personal commission from God. It wasn't just obedience. It wasn't just gratefulness. There was some kind of inner flame of joy that motivated and moved them. Paul says, Romans 12, never be lacking in zeal, never be lacking in fervency. He says to Timothy, fan the flame of your gift. Again, I feel like I used to do that all the time. And then I have to look to Soren Kierkegaard for wisdom, and, and he can be uh, easy to misinterpret. He doesn't write like other philosophers. It's not always straightforward and clear, uh, so you have to be careful when you see quotes by him. But, but he does say this as he tries to figure out uh, how, what motivates him, what gets him out of bed. And he says, the thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wants me to do. The thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live or die. 
not just pastors, not just missionaries, every single member of every single church who is born again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, needs to have a commission from God at which they say, this thing moves me to such a degree that it is what I can say I would base my life on, the idea for which I can live and die. People misinterpret him and, and think that he's a relativist. He's not a relativist. He's always all about the subjective. That's has that element, but he's about the subject, about the person. And the reason is because you put him in his context, late 1800s, he's in the Danish Lutheran context. What has he seen his entire life? Cold, austere, external Lutheranism going through the motions, and the people are good at it. And this generation comes in doing what their parents' generation did, doing what their grandparents' generation did, doing what their great-grandparents' generation did. And Soren looks out and says, but where is life? Where is zeal? Where is love? Everyone's just mechanically going through the motions, like opening up a Swiss watch. It's beautiful, and there's cogs, and there's these things, and, and someone could admire it to one degree how amazing this generational quote-unquote faith is, but it's not a living faith. Like those cogs, like those gears, it's dead. It's not life. And Soren is very much all about discovering your inner motive, so whether that's kind of build an Antioch's SEMA map, motivated abilities pattern. You have to take something like 18 months to figure out what motivates you. Uh, Most people taking that probably say, I I know exactly what motivates me. And then they get through the whole process and say, I did not even realize the depth to which I did not know myself. That's what Soren Kierkegaard is hitting on. In an easier way, you could think of Rick Warren's shape. And while Warren is not particularly good in the theology department, he is very good when it comes to some of the church structure and church helps and being very practical. And his shape acronym is exactly that kind of thing that we have to impress upon our people. What is our uh, spiritual gift? What is our heart? What is our ability? What is our personality, of which there are 16 different kinds? We have people in our membership class go through a personality test on the Sheffield website. Why? So that they learn themselves and they learn how to protect other people from themselves. An introvert can get very offended when you don't have the deep conversations they want because you're trying to keep it light and breezy. But an extrovert can get very exhausted when all you want to have is deep and meaningful conversation. It's not just us. This is how God created us, put us in community, because he's got a sense of humor. And the last one for uh, Rick Warren's shape is experience. Our experiences, what we've been through, are not a mistake. They're there so that we can use them for the glory of God, so that we can be driven by them for the glory of God. We've opened up our home over the years to various young teenage men who have come to live with us, and, and it's not because we're holy, it's not because we're somehow more sanctified, it, it, it is because I have a deep hollowness in myself, and I feel that, and I see that in some of these young men, and I get what they're going through. I feel their brokenness in their broken families. And we don't always talk about it, and I don't always do the direct counseling, but boy, we stay up at 12 or 1 or 2, and, and we deal with issues and I, I understand some of these issues. 
And so it's therapeutic for me. I, I take my own pain and try to turn it into God's gain. Has that pain gone away? No, it's still there. It still drives me. It's still with me in the morning. But that experience is important because God has allowed me to have it. My life experiences. Why? So I can be who I can be to somebody else who needs that. I can't be all things to all people, despite the phrase, despite the cliche. Uh, when Paul said that, he's talking about the gospel. In reality, we, any one of us, can reach certain people that maybe some of us uh, couldn't reach. Some of us who could never try to reach teenagers, it just wouldn't work. And there's some that can reach the elderly, but 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 we're not. I'm not so good with that. No wonder God has changed us and formed us. Find the idea for which I can live and die. What motivates you? What moves you? What gets you out of bed? What would you say if someone had a gun to your head? You must stop doing this thing. And your answer would be, I can't. I mean, I want to. I don't like the gun to my head. But I can't. And that thing starts to define your personal commission from God. When you're doing that, we won't have to worry about burnout in the pastorate. We won't have to worry about uh, people uh, failing in their marriages because when you figure that out, that is going to bring a wellspring of blessing. What does that look like? I can only tell you in our own context what we've seen, what Nick and I have seen and been blessed to see. A wife who's in a tattered, tattered marriage to a non-Christian, finding hope and healing and helping abused women and their children. A woman who's been raped numerous times by men that she trusted and family members who opens her house to help other women and single moms to teach them for years how to budget, how to shop for food, how to take care of their child. We see healthy families who normally, I don't think, would ever say, yes, let's open up our home for foster care because everything's safe, everything's secure. But instead, feeling the love and the pull of God, they go through many months of training. The church supports them in many months of training. They're watching and babysitting their kids so that they can open their home, so that they can share the love of Jesus Christ. A couple I already told you about moving to a new tribe to take the gospel to the ends of the world. A husband whose wife divorced him. We saw it coming. He was in biblical counseling. It was tragic. It was sad. It was heart-wrenching. And yet now, he recognizes his wife left him because of his own hard heart. And when he sees other husbands who have a hard heart, other husbands being rude, he'll call them up or he'll send an email or he can take them out to eat or take them out to lunch or, or mention a word to them. And isn't that a good testimony a man warning another man to love their wife. Every Christian needs a ministry that fires them and fuels them and gets them out of bed. It's more than a gift and it's more than a call. It is a sense that they must do this thing for Christ or they will die and shrivel up. That's the kind of enlightenment we've got to be praying for. So confess, be cleansed, be commissioned. Oh, church, when Hezekiah followed uh, Isaiah's example, he ushered in a time of fantastic revival lasting decades, 40 years plus reform 
for the entire nation of Israel came when Israel followed Hezekiah's model, who was following Isaiah's model. Blessing came in. Protection from enemies came in. Revival came in. Israel prepared themselves and oriented themselves to the holiness and the nature and the mercy of God. But we follow suit. Let me end with the Valley of Vision prayer. I know you're hungry, ready to go. Oh, God of grace, you have imputed my sin to my substitute. You have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with the bridegroom's robe, decking me with the jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. Lord, I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments. And by grace, I'm always receiving change of raiment. For you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal. Always saying, Father, forgive me. And you, you are always saying, bring forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it. Every evening return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wounded in death in it. To stand before the great white throne in it. To enter the kingdom in it. Shine Grant me never to lose the sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of your grace. Lord, we love you. Bring revival. In the name of Jesus.